This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. I'm very glad to welcome you today to a actually joint event that we're hosting between ourselves at the Resolution Foundations and the uh, Brookings, our friends in Washington. You can't see him, but in the audience, David Wessel, who runs all of the macroeconomics work there, is over in town. He's telling us that actually sometimes messy macroeconomic policy happens in countries outside Britain. So it's very good for our self-esteem, if not for his. The, um, so thank you very much for that little boost to us all, David. The, um, uh, and we're going to discuss a bit about that, because it's actually one of the things that's happened over time, actually, over the 20 years I've been doing versions of um, this stuff, is that actually, Britain in particular, but I think lots of places have become more insular in terms of how they think about the policy challenges they are facing, which is particularly odd given that lots of the actual substance of the economics challenges, particularly the ones we're going to be talking about in a bit, are very much shared. So drawing out the similarities and differences is a good way to think about how to do policy better. So that's what we're going to do a bit of today. Then to help us do that, you're first of all going to hear from Don Cohn, who is now, because he apparently doesn't want to ever retire, um, is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a role I'm told that involves thinking, but also fundraising, <laughs> which is very important. And all donations will be split today between the Resolution Foundations and the Brookings. If there's 50-50 split, there'll be envelopes at the back, but we don't take anything less than $100 uh, from uh, each of you. But the, um, but uh, Don is more famous for being the vice chair of the um, Federal Reserve and a kind of centre point of the federal system for how many decades would you like me to say? Four, okay. Uh, it's always good to check on these things for four, um, for four decades. You can tell that Don uh, brings a lot of um, depth of experience and thinking because I'm not sure I've ever actually seen an event here at the Resolution Foundation. Those of you that are online won't be able to see this, which has featured so many current or uh, ex-members of the Bank of England monetary policy in the audience, and you should all keep piping down. Okay, these guys are speaking today. They, um, you can vote um, instead. So that's because you've got so much to offer. Anyway, so we're going to hear from Don um, about his reflections on a rather messy macro environment we find ourselves in. Then I'm going to show you a few slides about why it's quite complicated right now, understanding what the differences are between the UK and the US and a bit on the euro area. And then we've got um, two other brilliant speakers. So you're first of all going to hear from Anaria Woods, um, who is the founding dean of the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. And again, has also done many, many other things. I'm not going to say how many decades each of them took. They, um, and then, uh, sorry, was that, that, was that risky? That risky? Okay. All right. Okay. It's, it's, it's the evening. It's an evening event. You don't want really dull tonight, do you? That's not what you've come for. I'm going to show you some charts in a bit and that'll pipe you all down a bit. They, and then you're going to hear from uh, Chris Giles, um, who is, as of last week, has stood down as the economics editor of the Financial Times after how many years, Chris? 19, only two decades. He's a spring chicken. I think we get a clap for 19 years. Well done, Chris. They, um, and you can sign up only if you're a premium subscriber, which I am not to the FT, so I can't get his new weekly newsletter 
on uh, monetary policy and the global economic content. But the rest of you who've got more cash after you've donated to us should also cough up for your premium subscription and get your newsletter from uh, Chris. So that is the plan for this evening. We're going to run until about 7.15. You can ask questions on Slido. In fact, loads of you already have. So go on to um, Slido and it's hashtag worlds apart to put your questions in. We might even do a poll there uh, if we get that far. So that is the plan. Don, what on earth is going on? I wish I knew, uh, but let me take a few guesses. So I think one, you've asked me, Torsten, to talk about inflation in the US, and, uh, and I'll do that, and I'll be very interested in hearing the similarities and differences in other, in other places here. So inflation actually has fallen quite sharply in the United States over the last few months. So if I look at um, core, uh, PCE, personal consumption expenditure price index, the one that the Fed looks at most closely. Uh, it's year over year, it's about 3.9, I think, almost 4% relative to a year ago. But the last three months have not been, have been just a tick over 2%. So in the last, uh, there's been a very sharp decline in inflation over the last few months. Um, this has occurred, interestingly, this decline in inflation has occurred even though the economy's been pretty strong. So economic growth has been around and some people think even a little over potential growth in the U.S. over the last few quarters, including the third quarter. Um, so despite this resilient growth, consumption's been very strong holding up. The incomes have been strong, consumption's been strong. Some of this is using the excess saving that they've accumulated with all the fiscal support that they had, that uh, households had uh, through the pandemic. Um, but that, that excess savings by many calculations has kind of run down, but still, Consumption's been quite strong supporting the U.S. economy, and nonetheless, inflation's come down. So uh, why? Why has inflation come down? I think a good part of this is unwinding some of the distortions that accompanied the, the shutdown from COVID. So certainly the inflation that we saw uh, 2021, latter part of 2020, 2021, 2022 resulted from very sharp increases in demand, particularly for goods. Uh, people were not going out and spending money for services so much, anything in person. So big shift in demand for goods uh, against constraints on supply curves from China and other places. So big increase in demand, constrained supply, chips weren't coming in, autos were in short supply, even houses. So big shift in housing, people were working from home, they wanted bigger houses, they weren't commuting so they could live further out in suburbia. Big increase in demand for square footage and constraints on the materials and on the labor uh, to produce that thing. And I think the constraints on labor was an important piece of this. For a while, uh, labor force participation was down. Uh, in particular, my, my colleagues the, in the over 65 range had dropped out of the labor force. Labor over force 65 range. Right. <laughs> Big range. That's where they go on the um, chart. Right. 
uh, had dropped out of the labor force. So you had a big increase in demand, less, uh, less labor supply, uh, less supply in other ways, and that really, so you had prices going up. And I think it's an, an important point is price, the increase in inflation preceded the increase in wages. So you did have a decline in real wages. I know, Torsten, you have a chart on this coming up, an interesting chart coming up. So I think one of the things that's brought inflation down is some of these distortions going away. So uh, a little bit of a demand for goods is still remarkably strong, but a bit of a shift back towards, uh, towards services. Um, you had, uh, particularly in the uh, real estate market, we had uh, for a while a decline in prices. Has come, uh, prices maybe have turned around a little bit. Um, goods prices uh, are basically flat over the last... Uh, last year, year and a half, uh, and this, uh, this particular index, the PCE index. Service prices, however, have continued to rise rapidly, so uh, about 5%, I think, on a year-over-year -year basis, and even if you look at the last few months, they're still, they're still rising pretty rapidly. That's very heavily dependent on the labor markets, so I think you, unwinding of COVID constraints have certainly helped in goods. Um, there's also been moderating pressure on labor markets. So it's somewhat surprisingly, because the economies continue to grow pretty well, some of those um, indicators of labor market demand and labor market pressure have, have eased off. So we'll get another reading tomorrow, but increases in, uh, in jobs have, are still pretty strong, but have come down quite a bit. Some of the inc indicators of labor market churn, people quitting jobs to get other jobs, they're actually back to where they were in 2019. Now, one indicator isn't, which is the vacancies. So vacancies have come down. Businesses are still apparently bidding for for labor to some extent, they still have vacancies. So the ratio of vacancies to the unemployment rate is, has, re, has come down quite a bit, although it's still somewhat elevated. And I'm not sure what happened to initial claims for unemployment insurance today, but anyhow, they're not, businesses aren't laying people off. So those initial claims for unemployment. So I think we've seen, and the rate of increase of wages has moderated a little, but it's still, far too high to be consistent with a 2% inflation target. So I think we've seen moderating pressure in labor markets, taking some pressure off of wages, some pressure off of service prices, but we're not quite, quite there yet. It has, uh, and, I, and I think watching the, the dynamics in the labor market will be key to the inflation picture going forward. So we, we have in the, I know you have a lot of labor action here. We have some in the U.S., in the auto industry, for example, and you can see workers trying to make up for previous declines in real wages or dropping short of the previous trend in real wages. So I think that there's a risk that that keeps pressure on wages and limits the amount that uh, inflation can decline towards the 2% target. Now, the Federal Reserve and its most, least in, most recent set of projections had a perfect, wonderful soft landing. 
right? So they had inflation coming down to 2% and reaching almost 2% in 25 and then 2% in 26. They had the unemployment rate staying around 4%, which most people think is consistent with uh, full employment, a stable, stable full employment. Um, so they had, and, and growth remaining somewhat around potential. It was a, uh, I mean, the, the U.S. should be so lucky that this happens. I'm a little skeptical. I think I, I'm concerned that there can be continued pressure on wages and prices through the service sector. They'll need to have a little bit of relief on uh, labor market pressures, uh, some growth below potential, a bit of an increase in the unemployment rate. Um, but I would say uh, I held that view much more strongly three or four months ago, and the incoming data on inflation has made me optimistic that we don't need that much extra slack in labor markets, but I think it would be getting down to the 2% target would be much more um, likely and much more assured if we got some of the slack out of labor markets. I think the final point is when the Federal Reserve gave these forecasts, they also said what they thought would happen to their target interest rate, and they actually raised that rate. And I think they raised the rate um, mostly because spending has been so resilient to the increases in rates that have already happened. So their view was that we need to have rates a little bit higher and hold them high for quite a while just to keep the economy from shooting past the full employment mm -hmm. basis. Um, we'll see, right? Uh, uh, I think... To, to my mind, some of the things that have happened in financial markets over the last couple of weeks, a very sharp increase in long-term interest rates, a decline in equity prices, a sharp rise in the dollar, is doing a lot of the Fed's work for it. So maybe they don't need to. If you'd asked me a month or two ago, I would have said, eh, they probably do need to raise rates a little bit in order to assure themselves about the taking pressure off the uh, additional pressure of the labor markets. Now, I, th I think uh, if this is sustained, I think the tightening of the financial conditions themselves will have a, have a damping effect on aggregate demand and, and help with the inflation picture going forward. Very good. Thank you very much indeed, Dom. There's lots of, uh, there's lots of food for thought. We're going to come back to lots of that. The, um, including why Americans just keep buying so much stuff <laughs> to give you a trigger, which just shocks me every time. I always go to look at it and think they can't still be buying more stuff than they were before the pandemic, and they are still buying more it's ukuleles. There, amazing. There should be a limit to how many bits of sports kit can yeah. be purchased by Americans, but it turns out right. there is not right. yet. So we'll do a bit of that, and we should also definitely come back to where you finished on what is going on to medium and long-term rates okay. right now, given that that's what everyone is panicking about. Right, so that is, that is a great canter through what... Is a, is a significantly more benign US situation than we people thought a year ago or six months ago, even right. if not benign compared to the 2000s, for example. Right. Um, right. So the question is, I think the question for lots of us is, how does the rest of the world fit into that uh, picture? So I'm going to run you through a few slides just to ponder that while I'm boldly not come to a firm conclusion. The, um, uh, and then we're going to hear from our other great panellists. So 
You've all seen charts like this. Let's just focus on the left-hand side here a second. And I'm just going to talk about the UK, the US, and the Eurozone, but particularly the UK-US comparison. So the left-hand side tells you what you all know, which is the UK is the winner in how high it's managed to get its inflation. The, um, that probably isn't most of what you thought you were competing in, but it turns out we are. The, um, so the US has been winning, the UK has been winning at that consistently. And I'd focus on the duration of it as much as on where the peak happened to come. Yeah, the duration is really the, uh, the of a higher rate than the others, but you can the pattern is the pattern is similar. Go back to what I said at the beginning: are countries dealing with a shared uh, a shared challenge? Yes, because energy markets are um, global, and so it turns out our goods markets after a pandemic. The um, the fact that the Americans were buying all the ukuleles put up prices for ukuleles in the UK, even though we weren't buying any ukuleles. Right? I'm not. I'm joking. That is exactly what happened. The, the US sucked in so much of global goods demand. Um, that the, everyone else's goods prices went up, even though we weren't buying any due to the whole being poor problem. Then right on the right-hand side, it's showing you a similar picture on core inflation. Um, we would caution about reading too much into core inflation on the simplistic measure, just because there's a lot of energy in core indirectly, despite how people um, treat it. But on both measures, the UK, I think everybody basically gets, the UK is kind of doing well on the inflation um, uh, race, and that's why people have been panicking. That's what's sitting behind a lot of the panic about the UK, if you go back to the spring of this year and early summer. Right, then this is the thing causing the Bank of England to panic now. So Don told you that nominal wage growth has slowed a bit in the US, but it's still higher than is normally seen as consistent with the um, uh, 2% inflation target. That's the red line, um, as you see, it's, it's on the way down, but a lot higher than people are used to. But look at the UK line. It does not look like that. The, um, now, I'm not, there's, there's definitely some challenges about the quality of the UK data right now on some of this. But on any measure, there is strong nominal wage growth in the UK. And in fact, one of the best ways, and as I'll show you in a second, to think about what's going on is that the UK has definitely ended up with a higher nominal wage growth, higher inflation path through this large energy um, and goods price shock. The, um, and I think it's worth dwelling on that because this is now, this isn't the thing that was causing the panic back in the autumn. This is definitely the chart that's taken me most by surprise. If you'd asked me last March, was UK wage growth going to accelerate again? I would have said probably not. The labour market's already started to show some. I did. That's what I'm said. What do you want? You have to, I'm being honest, Chris. What do you want? God, you're heckling already. I literally just said. Yeah. The, anyway, I definitely did not. It has. So that's what people on, if you're on the MPC now, and you're feeling nervous, this is what's making you feel sweaty, okay? Right, where does that leave us? This is probably the most surprising chart of any that I'm gonna show you, okay? So in the US discourse, everybody thinks wages have been really strong. If you're coming from the White House right now, you're asking why aren't Americans grateful for the really strong recovery we've had, which if you look at GDP, you see, right? And in the UK, everyone says we're all miserable because we've been immiserated by this really high inflation. No wonder we're all miserable, right? But UK and US real wages are actually have done almost exactly the same thing since 2019. Which I don't think anyone, I, no one listening to those discourses would expect this to be the underpinning data, but they are actually the same because basically the UK has had higher inflation than the US and higher nominal wage growth. And you put the two together and you end up basically back in the same place, which is another way of putting it is there's enough bad news going around for everybody to be miserable. Uh, and that is what is actually, um, that is what's actually going on. But I think the thing to think in your head is, why are real wages the same when the US recovery has been so much stronger, right? Far, much faster, 
GDP per capita and productivity growth in the US post-pandemic, even after our recent upgrades that now make us look the same as France, yeah, and a bit better than Germany. But why are we getting stronger real wages but not have the same productivity um, uh, growth? So then the question is, what does that leave policymakers? They, um, they, and this is just this is now getting into the interest rates question. So Don's talked you through that red line there, so on US rates. And what you're seeing and the blue line is UK rates and then some different market expectations. So focus first of all on the top line, the top dotted blue line. And it's telling you that people expected UK short rates, bank rates, to go high because it, people thought that UK inflation wasn't coming down, right, back in June and July. They were like, before we got the good, the, the good news started to come in of some falls, people were panicking that the bank was going to have to remember all that stuff about rates are going to go well over 6%. We're going to have to absolutely crush this economy because there's no way inflation's even starting to fall. Maybe it's all self-fulfilling. No one's got a clue what's going on anymore. The, um, that's what the sh pushes up the short-term rates. We're going to come back to long-term rates, which is where Don finished in a second. In the US, people are expect now what we're expecting is, OK, the UK inflation line looks pretty similar to the US inflation line in shape, even though it's been higher. The lines have started coming down roughly at the same pace, which is why the dotted blue line now looks pretty similar to the... Uh, Fed's own expectations, the typical expectation of Fed Reserve members. But all I would say is people are expecting the US line to come down a bit faster than the UK line. I think that is the consensus position. The UK has got a more entrenched inflation position problem because of that wage chart I showed you. And so rates will stay higher for longer here. Okay. I'm just going to offer you one reason to think, are we definitely sure about that? And then open up for our conversation. So that is what people expect to happen. People expect rates genuinely to stay higher now, anyway, over the last 10 days, but they, um, but they generally expect them to stay higher in the UK for longer. And the reason I'm not totally sure is the next chart, the last one, if I can make it, here you go, the, um, which is basically the pace of labour market loosening is happening much faster in the not much faster, it's happening faster in the UK. So in the US, labour market loosening looks like vacancy, vacancies falling, people moving between jobs has come down, the, um, but it does not look like big increases in unemployment or falls in employment. Okay, so just the chart is showing you vacancies over unemployment, one measure of labour market tightness. But all of these lines in the US and the UK, in particular, are driven by falling vacancies, not by big rises in unemployment. But if you look, if you look at just what's happened in the last few months on the actual employment numbers, people in jobs, we are definitely heading in the downward direction. Exactly how fast is very uncertain, but it's going down. And actually, if you look at the last set of data, again, you don't want to overinterpret one bit of data, but it's showing the largest fall we've ever seen outside of a recession. Okay, so there's like actual unemployment happening rather than just vacant, sorry, actual employment falls happening rather than just vacancy numbers going down, the tightness of last year going away. Is, it, how, is that going to last at that pace? I hope not, otherwise it's a, in a proper recession, but, but, but it's definitely happening. The US is still, people are still writing pieces about immaculate disinflation, like adding the question is have we slowed how many jobs we're adding not are we actually seeing falls in payroll data right those are very different worlds in those worlds if that us uh, uk loosening continues at that pace do we think the bank of england leaves rates as high as the fed does while watching large increases in large employment falls happening i'm not sure and the reason this is interesting is because wages are a lagging indicator of the labor market compared to employment We've got really high wage growth in the UK, but the labour market the labour market is loosening quicker. That is hard to know how to interpret. 
That, I think that is the underpinning. How you think about what's different about the UK and the US basically should come down to which bit of the UK labour market data do you place most weight on the wages or the loosening going on on actual quantity uh, numbers. Um, so just to wrap up, uh, we have won. Higher wages and higher nominal wage growth is like, when we look back on this in like 10 years' time, we'll say, what was different? We'll say the UK went through this crisis with higher, wage, higher nominal wage, no wages and higher inflation than the US and most of the Europe did. That was good for some people. Did you? This is a good, any of you with big debts, this is the only bit that's good for you. Uh, you're, it's better to have gone through it with higher nominal uh, wage growth. The, um, if you look at just wages, then you're going to expect the UK to leave rates higher for longer. But monetary policy is trying to work out what's going on tomorrow, not just today. And the labour market is loosening. So which one of these do you want to put weight on? The, um, there you go. There's some reflections on comparative macro policy. The, um, now, we've now got two great speakers who are going to take us in a wide range of directions. So fiery, nary woods. <laughs> uh, what is going on from your perspective? So he said fiery because that's how you were minimum... That's how you can remember how to pronounce my first name, Nairi. By the way, never. And fiery. you are quite fiery. Never fiery. Never. You never are fiery. Exhausted. You are definitely fiery. But what I would like to do is to um, is to range widely away from where we've gotten to, or at least to answer a different question, which is, to whom does this debate matter? Like, why does it really matter at this juncture um, that we that we absolutely get this right? And to go back to the basic observation that inflation is probably the most regressive tax of all. And that's why we care so much about the fight against inflation. And that it's happening against a background, not looking at wages over the last year, but as we all know, over the last 30 years, it's happening against a background of returns to labor spiraling downwards where returns to capital spiral upwards. And so what we see when we look at the 30-year horizon or even further 1980 through to today is this fairly dramatic increase in wage inequality in the United States and the United Kingdom but much more dramatic increase in wealth inequality. Now why does that matter? It matters because we sit in a world which looks very precarious today. I've just come out of you know, intense discussions about Europe, United States, Ukraine policy, where the, the political establishment are all convinced that you know, this is the war that defines the future of civilization. But their populations are not behind them, not in the United States, not in Germany, not in the United Kingdom. You've got 35% in Germany supporting the AFD, which is pro-Russia. You've got a United States Congress where the majority cannot hold together anymore and facing a government shutdown. And then in a year, an election, which will bring a less nuanced thinker about inflation and monetary policy to the presidency, perhaps. So I thought you were about to be really harsh about Keir Starmer there, but uh, no. <laughs> it turned out you were taking it in a different direction. And. There are two big stories that people like to tell about this rise in so-called populism or deeply anti-establishment thinking, which means get rid of independent central banks, get rid of government institutions as we know them. And one, which I think is preferred by the establishment itself, 
is that this is all about misinformation. It's rather foolish and sometimes deplorable or stupid people believing stupid things that they read on Facebook. And the other is that this is the result of the 30-year picture I just put to you, that this is because people feel that something to which they were entitled, the idea that if they work hard, their lives will become better, their households will become wealthier, their children will have better, better options. And that feels like it's been wrested from them in favour of all kinds of other things to which they are now implacably opposed. So when I took this topic on inflation and monetary policy, my question was, what is the role of central banks in accentuating this problem that we face? And what now is their role in ameliorating it? Those central banks who, in the face of the global financial crisis, as the finance ministers of the world hid in the trenches, they pushed their central bankers out to the front line with relatively few instruments at their disposal. And they quickly used up those instruments. Interest rates stopped being a reasonable lever for financial stability, and so asset purchases became the instrument. What has that decade of asset purchases done? It's enhanced the value of the assets that the wealthy hold, shares, bonds, and such like, at the expense of all other taxpayers. So it's increased the problem of inequality that we've seen. And now we have a situation where we have both bads. The bad, the regressive tax of inflation and the consequences of a decade of asset purchases and um, diminished tools that central banks can use. And that's a pretty difficult world. And so to me, yes, it's important to do the quarter by quarter analysis of what's happening with inflation and what's happening between the United Kingdom and the United States on inflation. But let's remember to what end we're trying to aim this analysis and ask ourselves, so what is it? We've got some of the world's most eminent central bankers in this room tonight. What is it that central banks should be doing to wrestle with the problem of inequality is just not the, is no longer just the moral problem of, you know, a, a, a sort of group of, left-wing political parties. The problem of, in, of inequality and the perceptions about that inequality have now become part of a drive to threaten the whole establishment, the whole house. Wherein, if we look at Ipsos and Pew and the world surveys, we see that more than three quarters of people in most of the world's proud Western democracies believe that the elite simply feathers its own nest and they look at increasing inequality of wealth and say there's the proof. So in my view, central bank governors, having been pushed pretty unfairly to the very front line, nevertheless, now off that front line to some degree, need to, need to explain to us what their contribution will be to keeping the stability, which goes beyond the financial system stability, but to the stability of the systems that we know. And obviously, we, know we haven't roamed into fiscal policy tonight, and the, the, the relationship between fiscal and monetary policy is very challenging, in my view, at the moment, probably more challenging than we've ever seen it before. And we might want to go into that, because the fiscal yeah. solutions to the problem that I'm putting on the table are a very important part. But I, for one, long to hear from 
the central bankers on the panel as well as in the audience. We're looking at a whole row. Those of you who are online, we have a, a rows of eminent central bankers here about what central banks can do um, to now that they are no longer trying to rescue financial systems through measures which everybody knew would have some regressive consequences, what are the peacetime measures now to address inequality? Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you, says everybody in the room, except for the central bankers. They are feeling slightly stressed now. They're, it's okay. Well, you can get, you've got some time to think about your answers to inequality, guys. Well, right, Chris, you, there's about five monetary policy-related columns in what I told you she was fiery, yeah. I would say. They're over to you. Absolutely. And I'm going to, I'm going to stick to... I'm not going to go back into the weeds, uh, uh, but I think Nairi has... Raised, are you accusing us two of being in the weeds? No, not at I all. I think you are. Uh, I, I, I have said, I've only said what I'm going to do. I didn't say about you <laughs> whatsoever. Um, but now he's raised some very big issues. And I, and I think just if you take a really big stand back view of what's happened over the past two years, um, you would say the very, very big picture is that there hasn't been a massive difference. We've had, we had uh, monetary stability, price stability in a very broad sense for 40 years. And then we lost it. And that's a bad thing. Uh, so the very, very big picture, and just how bad, and I uh, alluded to this, but I'm just going to give a couple of statistics which have really uh, troubled me and made me think uh, about this a lot in the last few weeks, um, is that the public certainly don't think it's over, however much the US uh, picture has improved. So in the US, the Wall Street Journal, obviously our competitors, but ran a rather good uh, opinion poll of uh, asking people has US inflation improved or gone in the right or the wrong direction over the past year? There's an objective answer to that question, it's gone in the right direction. There's, there's no, the, objectively, the answer is it's gone in the right direction. 74% uh, of the people surveyed said it's gone in the wrong direction. 92% of Republican voters. So not only has this become a polarised, politically polarised issue, even among Democrats there was a majority who thought it had gone in the wrong direction and were objectively wrong about it. And what that says to me is that people don't think in annual terms. People think in price level terms, not in annual inflation terms, and that this is going this episode is therefore going to last in people's memories quite a long time. And just to give you a sense of how long it might last in people's memories, I want to remind you in this country, in the UK, of the 1992 Conservative Party slogan for the election. It was the double whammy poster. One was higher taxes under Labour and the other was higher inflation under Labour. And they were harking back to 1979. That was 13 years earlier. And that resonated in 1992. So I think there's a lot of trouble for governing parties politically who are currently overseeing high inflation. And that means the Conservatives in this country and the Democrats in the US, but also uh, governing parties in other parts of Europe. But the question here tonight was really about what's different rather than what's the same. So I'm going to just focus on that a little bit and talk about the transatlantic differences. So even though the big picture is the same, and even though if you look at lots of academic studies when people try and separate the demand and the supply causes of inflation, 
people seem to come up with a number pretty much 50-50 um, demand and supply on lots of different sorts of techniques. On both sides of the, of the Atlantic, these sort of often get that sort of result. I think this is really rather different on both sides of the Atlantic. In the US, there was much more, whatever the right number is, there was a lot more demand and less of a supply shock uh, than there was in the UK. We all, the whole world suffered from an oil shock. Oil prices doubled between 2021 and the, the peak in 2022. In late 2020, they were $40 a barrel. In, in September 2021, they were $80 a barrel. When you look at the European gas, natural gas price, that went up 10 times uh, from the 21 to the 22 peak. And OK, it didn't stay there very long, although we didn't know that at the time. Uh, but it was, it's, it's still uh, twice as high as it was. So the supply shock was definitively worse in the, in the whole of Europe than the US. And the terms of trade elements of that was the US, even with oil, produces oil. So if you're a consumer of oil in the US, that's, that's no, there's no interest to you. But the US as a whole uh, doesn't lose money when the oil price goes up, whereas Europe as a whole does lose money and is poorer when the price of energy rises. And so when we see that the real wages are the same in the US and the UK over that period, we should worry because UK real wages should be performing worse than US real wages overall if we want inflation to be stable. So because um, I was Hugh Pill who said we have to get used to being poorer. I think he was he, what he said was poorly worded is that the situation means that we are poorer and the Bank of England has to ensure that's the case. It's nothing about getting used to it or enjoying it or feeling harder about it, but that is the case. And if we're not seeing that, then it is problematic for where we think UK inflation is going. Um, so we've had a terms of trade shock and with the terms of trade shock, you also tend to find you will get more conflict after that because people, there are losses to be distributed and people, no one wants to be the person holding the, not holding the hot potato, but holding the losses at the end of the situation. So you would expect then that the overall underlying inflation picture to be rather worse, even though things have got better in all places, in, U in the Eurozone, in the UK and in America in the past three months. Um, just to put all this together, um, all the forward-looking signs that much better, as Torsten was saying, looking at the UK labour market, where you've got this conflict between the existing past 12 months of wage increases and then the uh, vacancies falling relative to unemployment, or unemployment beginning to rise. I am slightly sceptical about the unemployment figures in the UK. We should remember that the uh, sample survey Response rate of the Labour Force Survey is, anyone have no in this audience? 15%, 1-5% at the moment. Uh, in the waves, they're all over the place. These numbers are being derived by the ONS's subjective uh, weighting on each wave. In So it might be the case that unemployment is rising. It might be the case that it isn't. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on it um, at the moment. So I think we are slightly in the dark. Um, the UK, we would expect the UK to be performing worse. Not only has it had the terms of trade shock, but it's had a, it's had a worse labour supply shock 
that we've had more of a drop in participation, particularly among older workers. It's not, it's not recovering nearly as fast as the US or the Eurozone. And of course, we've got Brexit. I don't want to exaggerate the effect of Brexit on this, but it is a small additional headwind. Great. Thanks for the gloom, Chris. Very good. Really picked us all up there at the end. The, um, very good. Okay, look, there's a lot of food for thought there, both on what is going on, what is the background to that, and what, and what does it possibly mean going forward in terms of the political um, economy, and then how on earth the policymakers dealing with a highly uncertain um, world um, deal with it. I was going to start with like a question for you all on like how should we characterise what is going on. So have we got, is it in, in six months, because the other thing that's going on at the moment is there's a lot of uncertainty, right? And people's views about what the world looks like are changing very fast. The, um, you're seeing that right now on long-term rates, as you said, the, um, but you're also seeing it on like how different countries are seen. Like six months ago, everybody was writing their pieces about how Britain was over. Um, now they're writing pieces about how Germany's over. They, um, give, them a, give them a week and it'll be writing about how fiscal Armageddon is coming to the US. They, um, but one like, attempt to see through those, which is kind of getting at some of what Chris is nudging on about what's different in terms of trade shock wise across the Atlantic is that the US might manage, I don't want to say immaculate disinflation, but not Armageddon based disinflation. Um, but that the but in that Europe is going to get Europe's basically going to the doom that everyone's been predicted will basically turn up in Europe just a year later than people thought. Chris, is that basically because you are quite a gloomy bloke? I, I'm quite gloomy. I, I think we should recognise that been there have been uh, so a lot of things have got better. So from this time last year, where you could really talk about Armageddon in the energy markets, you know they have come down a lot, and the reason that economies have been performing better than expected in Europe. Uh, is a lot of that is because we've had a positive supply shock relative to last year. It's not got back to normal yet, so overall we're still worse off. Uh, but things aren't as as bad as we thought. And in certain countries, I'm thinking about Germany in particular, who's totally was very very exposed to uh, the closing down of trans uh, Baltic pipelines, etc. They might be very unhappy with their own economic situation, but actually it's done hugely better than we thought and all uh, you, th you think they should say to the punters it could have been much worse well it's never a good political argument it's a terrible no. political argument as we all know but uh, I think as from the economics you can say that you know the the re reduction in demand in particularly gas use across the whole of Europe meant that we didn't have Armageddon we didn't have any shortages we're not going to have any shortages this winter it wasn't mostly about warm weather it was mostly about reduction in demand so price works elasticities were higher than we thought all of these things are rather better than we thought it's not a nice situation but we've dealt with it you know given given what we were faced with given energy prices going up 10 times, way worse than the 70s for, for energy that we so really let's, use. Let's, let's take that question to, a, to, a, to a, so um, this, and this is like engaging with your big picture challenge, which is, is there a danger, though, that what we've now got is for, for economic policymakers, and you can take this in a European and a US direction, policymakers are like, look, it's actually gone, it hasn't gone as terribly as we thought. And then are looking at the punters who are absolutely furious mm -hmm. because it's still gone terribly and that the politics is actually going to get even worse. So, well... With permission, Torsten, which I'm seizing anyway, um, I have a question for, for Don, um, which is, 
so there's, you know, there's a body of evidence that tells us that one of the things that kept inflation down for a couple of decades was globalization. Mm-hmm. And that globalization has now hit some very serious buffers. And those buffers include the security of supply and friendshoring arguments, include the tariffs and protectionism um, that we're seeing flourishing even vis-a-vis allies, you know, that, that we've seen out of the United States, Indu- a new industrial policy, the technological kind of arms race between China and the United States, um, and, the, and the new idea that there are critical minerals, metals, and materials. So we're seeing that globalization come to a buffer. Does that, what does that look like as a central banker? Does that mean that now there are parts of inflation which globalization was controlling for you that you've now got to, in a long-term way, take very seriously? And the other thing that people assume took, you know, restrained inflation um, was the decline and the weakness of wage bargaining by workers. Here, Here in this country, we're seeing a, you know, a, a, a range of strikes. We're seeing, as I've said, much more you know, new, quite strident political movements across the world, both left and right. Does that change how we think about these long-term um, dampeners of inflation? But the globalization one, I'd really love to hear how that looks as a central, bank gov- as a central banker. So. Well, I agree with you that uh, a portion of the disinflation that we had from 1990 and particularly from from the fall of the Berlin Wall and integrating Eastern Europe into the global system and then when China joined WTO was the so-called optimization of supply chains making them more efficient much uh, much less expensive mm-hmm. that uh, passed through into prices for consumer goods in particular. If I think about the jeans and the sneakers that people buy at Walmart, they were a lot less expensive than they would have been without the globalization. These were favorable supply shocks. And they, I don't know whether globalization is going to be reversed, but certainly the momentum has gone and some of the things you cite as uh, potentially reversing uh, relying more, paying more attention to resilience than efficiency in supply chains, the China, uh, the, the trying to protect uh, technology flows and um, the, the tariffs on Chinese imports that Trump started and uh, Biden kept up. So I think that's, that's right. I think there is that favorable, st- that the central bankers took a lot of credit mm-hmm. for the disinflation, and I think they deserved some of it, but they probably took a little more credit than they deserved, and some of the other factors are reversing, which makes, or at least not favorable, which makes the sort of the underlying cost pressures a little more intense. Having said all that, I think central bankers can control the rate of inflation. It might be less favorable in terms of what unemployment rate, uh-huh. uh, how much pressure in labor markets there might need to be to get to the 2% inflation target, but they can do it uh, with monetary policy 
so, so I, I don't disagree with the thrust of your argument there, but that doesn't absolve the central banks from doing something about inflation. I think one of the, I agree with a lot of what you said in your initial comments up to a point, and I'll get to that in a second. So I do think a lot of the political divisiveness results from a sense that people got left behind, and that plays into the globalization. So the China, so-called China shock uh, in the U.S. left parts of the United States where there was manufacturing that fled to China and other places, left them much worse off than they were before. People felt like they got left behind. So as an economist, I could say we as a country were better off. Those, those jeans you bought in Walmart were cheaper, et cetera, but they felt left behind. And I think that's contributed, contributed to the inequality or the pe feeling, people feeling left behind, it contributed to the uh, political polarization that makes so many of our problems so difficult to solve. The place where I don't agree with you is that somehow central banks mm -hmm have some responsibility for curing that. And I think partly because I think independent central banks are really important to controlling inflation, I think giving them jobs to do that they don't really have the tools to do is just a, a recipe for failure, for impinging on the independence. So they, they can do the inflation target. I don't think they can do the inequality thing without giving up on the inflation target. Now, interestingly, when Jay Powell gives a press conference and when Federal Reserve people talk, they talk about the regressiveness of the inflation tax and they need to bring it down. In my mind, even if inflation weren't a regressive tax, they need to bring it down because inflation interferes with the price signals from the market. People don't like inflation. They don't. So tolerating higher inflation because it might do something about income inequality, first of all, I don't think it would. So bringing inflation down, they need just for the functioning of our economies uh, is absolutely necessary. And I, I wouldn't give them a job on, on inequality. And the uh, further point is I agree that the low interest rates exacerbated wealth inequality because the people held the wealth, those prices of those assets went up. They're in the process of reversing right now, but at the time they went up. I'm not sure about income inequality. So I think I would argue that QE reduced income inequality because it helped put people back to work. It lowered unemployment rates. It put people to work who otherwise wouldn't be wouldn't be at work. And so I think the, I don't think monetary policy is responsible at all for income inequality. And I think it actually helped along that regard, in that regard. And the asset purchases? Well, so I think the same, the asset purchases kept interest rates down, which increased asset prices. I completely agree with that. That was the purpose of them, really. They increased asset prices, increased people's wealth, it lowered the cost of borrowing, that encouraged people to spend, encouraging people to spend, encouraged businesses to hire. The unemployment rate was lower than it would have been if the banks hadn't 
engaged in uh, quantitative easing, and that probably lowered income inequality. Let's not asset, not wealth inequality, but yeah, yeah. income inequality. Yeah, I think that's the consensus. The that's definitely the consensus of the literature. Income inequality slightly down, yeah. wealth inequality def or at least wealth gaps up. I think wealth right. inequality is probably not quite right, but wealth gaps have definitely gone up because of the scale of easing. Let's let's pivot off the, um, the central bank independence question, but I want to use Chris as a journalist. We're allowed to ask Chris questions for once because he's always asking us questions. So Chris, do, do you want to tell people? Like, I think it's be good. For people that are not spending their lives reading um, uh, the FT or looking at markets, do you want to give people a quick summary of what is going on on long-term rates? Because I then want to come on to how much of a challenge is that for central bank independence next year. And then while we, Chris is giving us that teaching, if you, want, if you want to ask a question in the room, put your hands up. And if you want to do it online, it's on Slido and it's worlds apart. Chris, how, what's going on? How big a deal is it? Okay, so long-term rates, we're talking money borrowed by, generally by governments, because we're talking about the base of the financial system, money borrowed by governments over a long period, so 30 years or so, at a fixed interest rate. And now governments uh, in the past week, particularly led by the what's happened in the US Treasury market, it's gone potty, I think is the, uh, be the <laughs> technical term, is risen very rapidly to 4.7 or something for a 30-year uh, borrowing in this country, it's over five uh, for again 25 or 30 years. These are the highest rates in a generation, and it makes government or in our case, very in our case, since Liz Truss. Higher <laughs> just, just, but anyway, okay, right, you've ruined my gag, but but yeah, so mm. it's, it's about the same as last year for here, but um, it went down and up again, yeah. and it's a big deal. And people are so it's a big deal in, in like human speak. So there's like everyone's now going to panic about what the effect of that is on asset prices all yeah. over the financial system, which institutions, if they have to realise the losses on some of their bonds and the rest, could be in trouble the rest. So that's going on in regulatory land. We're not going to worry about that at all today, um, although somebody should be. But what will happen guys. to those rates if Trump gets elected? From prison? Okay, but let's, well, let's, let's do that as a... Right. So for those who aren't yeah. paying all the attention, so this is being American-led, what is going on. Okay, so it's American anxiety about America's what on earth is going on, yeah. can we take fiscal decisions if we need to, and the rest is triggering this. It, sitting behind it is a bigger problem, which is we don't know what long-term interest rates are. And so and markets are finding that hard to deal with. Like, there's no like agreement about what we think is going on in the medium term and we can just have a row about what's going on in the short term. That's what we like, okay, because we can cope with that. High inflation today, we'll put interest rates up, but we know they'll come back to the average rate in the long run. That world has gone because we no longer agree about what the average rate in the long run is, including me. I haven't got a clue. Okay, so that, and that's the underpinning problem. The US have given us the trigger by their like fiscal fanaticism flipping around nonsense but we're all but we're all in this together basically whatever happens so our so let's do this in terms like one don do we think that how much how much weight are you putting on the america's gone a bit fiscally loopy versus we don't know what long-term rates look at like and which one should we worry about more i think i would worry about i i think worry i would worry about america's gone fiscally loopy okay if that's a technical British that is actually, term. That's actually what we do. We write that in the textbooks. That, that's what Charlie teaches the youth. All right. Uh, I think it's quite, this plays off the political situation. So there's just no, the parties can't agree. The trajectory of the debt is high and rising. Debt to income is high and rising. It's really hard to see 
what the solution, I mean, it's easy to see solutions sitting in think tanks like Brookings or Resolution. Let's, let's, not, let's not start talking down <laughs> solutions in think tanks, Don. Some, some of us have got to get through the day. Some of my, some of my best friends. <laughs> some of our best friends are doing that. But, but, um, but it's really hard to get anything done in the political sphere in the United States. Again, remind everyone, the speaker's just been decapitated for those not paying attention to US politics. Okay. You all knew that? Yeah. And we've got 44 days to solve this. He hasn't this. been decapitated. He was just politely asked to step down. Okay, fine. Oh, wait. I'm okay. not sure how polite it was. <laughs> okay. Look at in, a, in, in a British situation, it probably would have been polite, We're but it would have sorry. been decapitated, <laughs> but they would have said, please put your head on the block. Right. <laughs> Instead, they just decapitate. Put his head on the block. Right. So we're going, to get, like, we're going to get somebody a bit more frothy-mouthed, probably. That's, again, the technical term. Quite possibly. And they've got to do a deal with the Democrats in And it's going to be, going to be harder. Yeah. So that's, so, so that's suboptimal. Uh, very suboptimal. <laughs> right. I, I certainly agree with that. And so do you think that is just triggering the, we don't know what long-term rates look like? Or is this a, oh my God, we think sovereigns it is a problem generally? So I think in, when you say don't know what long-term rates look like, I think you're referring to what sort of over time a short-term rate, uh, equilibrium short-term yep. rate might be exactly. that balances the economy. And I do think there's huge uncertainty about that. It had been falling for a decade or more and really fell after the global financial crisis. I think there's some reason to think, partly because of what's happening in this fiscal sphere, um, partly because of the way demographics are shifting, et cetera, that that rate might be coming up some. Um, and partly just because the US economy, all our economies have been more resilient than anyone thought to higher rates. The implication is that the longer term level might be a bit a bit higher um, and I think it's the policymakers have to be very agnostic about what's going on that's what they are so-called data dependence they're trying to figure out from the incoming data what's really going on and and reacting to that but I think of the things to worry about whether our star so-called this equilibrium rate is 50 100 150 basis points over what it used to be is um, not as important as the U.S. is on an unsustainable fiscal trajectory. Chris, are we, going, are we going back into, like, fiscal hawkishness as being out of fashion? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know when George Osborne went out of fashion, when he got booed at the Olympics. But it's been out of fashion generally here. It's, it's in fashion with a subset of Republicans in the U.S., but not loads. Do, is fiscal hawkishness basically just totally correlated with interest rates? Is this going to come back into fashion now? I, I mean, uh, honestly, I think we don't know. I think Don's put it very well. I think what, what, what we've, we've been through a period of uh, in the early 2010s was very much tight fiscal, loose money. Uh, that is clearly moving towards a looser fiscal, tighter money. But the degree to which it's moving towards that, I think, is highly, highly uncertain. And if it is the case that inflation does suddenly come under control. So a perfectly plausible way of thinking about the whole what's happened in the last two years is that we've just had one almighty price level shock. So we've got prices were at that level and now they're at that level. They're not going to necessarily keep rising from here on in. We've just been through a big transition. If that turns out 
to be true. We don't know it's going to be true at all, and there's good reasons why you might not think it's going to be true. But if that turns out to be true, and therefore inflation falls away down below target, to mm-hmm. something, then bond rates are unlikely, I would say, to stay where they are now, because that would then presume real, that the necessary real interest rate is way different to what it was before. And that would say, again, suggest that the global, the way the global economy work is working is, has really been transformed fundamentally by COVID. And I don't see why that would necessarily happen. So, so that's a, that's basically, I'd say that's also the consensus of the, the economist position, which is basically markets are currently overreacting and will calm down. A bit. Is that fair? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it is, uh, but we don't know. We okay. know I, I say that with very low confidence. Let's let's let add that to um, uh, Nara's question from earlier. Here's a question from Ian. You can see it on the screen here, and the rest of you in the room can see it from here. Which is basically, so if the old US, if the old China answer was China was giving us uh, disinflationary pressure in the advanced um, world, pushing down on goods prices. Actually, that mainly stopped actually a decade. That mainly stopped during the 2010s. I think that's mainly a feature of the 2000s. I think the last decade, actually, you don't see big falls in lots of consumer prices. It was kind of done a while back. Um, but everyone's focusing on it now because it's in the news. But the, um, the China question now is, 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 is China going to be an actual source of disinflation for other reasons? The, um, uh, and, and what does that mean about the question we've just raised about what's the medium-term outlook for rates? What do you think, Dom? So I think one, one way, one, as Ben Bernanke identified in 2003 or four, one of the contributors to low rates at that time was saving around the world. Yeah. And uh, particularly Asian economies, including China, but many of the economies that had been through the Asian financial crisis, building up their reserves and keeping their exchange rates from rising. So I, I think that... That and that put that, that contributed to the downward pressure on these equilibrium rates, this excess saving and investment was weak um, in those years as well. And I think the ex, I, we're not. I think an important piece of the China story is them actually selling Treasury securities, not building their reserves any further if anything, supporting their currency rather than trying to keep it from rising and other and potentially in Japan as well, right, where interest rates are creeping up and uh, you could see the yield curve control um, being loosened even further, putting pressure on global interest rates. Uh, So I think some of the, the disinflationary pressures or the the low interest rate pressures from that could be uh, could be eroding and probably is likely to be eroding. So that would put a little upward pressure on rates. I do think that um, the other piece of this is higher investment, and some of this is the is the transition to a less carbon intensive yep. world. In the U.S., the the administration, the political system has chosen to do this by giving subsidies and incentives, carrots, rather than the stick of higher, higher carbon prices, which contributes to the budget deficits. So I think you have the budget deficits, you have the investment necessary to do that, you have the investment to rebuild defense, 
mm -hmm. uh, in the wake of the Ukraine war and the using, using of the uh, defense stuff. So I do think those pressures, I don't think China is going to put downward pressure on interest rates. I think you have other pressures that'll keep that rate a little higher than it was. How much higher, whether it's 50, 100, 150, who knows. On, on, well, I, I agree because the, the China story that Ian puts uh, to us on Slido, we've got to also set against the huge uh, shifts that we've seen happen. Um, you know, first um, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, the new normalization of economic warfare and the presumption that to that end you will rally whole coalitions of countries, which is not, doesn't just have an effect on those who are either part of the sanctions regime or not, or those who opportunistically find ways to benefit from others doing the sanctions regime, but sends a frisson of real fear across other emerging economies who say, are we going to be next if you're Saudi Arabia or India or, you know, are we going to be the subject of sanctions next? Um, the language of decoupling the world economy, I mean, just think about what that actually means. I mean, we've heard it so much that we just sort of put it aside. But as Don said, the, you know, the Australia, you know in Australia, in the United States, in Germany, in, in, in Britain, I now hear leading politicians speaking with some insouciance about decoupling, sometimes saying we've decoupled. An Australian senior politician said, well, we've decoupled. I'm like, you've what? Have you actually looked at your nation's balance sheet? You know, in what sense have you decoupled? But that language is leading to an all-out framing, not of a relationship with China, which involves some necessary competition, some necessary cooperation, some necessary confrontation, but just of all-out enemy. And that will then end up coming back to bite the economy. Right. The, once you let that politics run forwards, it will bite, it will bite back. And then, as Don also mentioned, on, on climate and energy, the world waking up now to the real costs of climate volatility. And what does that actually mean? Is insurance going to survive? Is, is our supply chains going to survive? What are the political... And then now it's five years away, right, and accelerating. So, so and I agree, it's going to require huge investments. Right. So it's not to say all is doom and gloom, it's to say this is a very different world that we're trying to navigate now and the, and the levers of government are going to have to be deployed in ways that governments have not had to deploy them for 30 or 40 years and we've got to equip and support our governments to do that. It's lucky we are ready to do it, that they're ready to receive our equipping. That's what they're, they're ready to improve. Donald Trump is, is calling out for the answers for Brookings to how to effectively run administration. He's, re <laughs> he's ready to receive your advice. Right, Shushal, a question from you. Yes. Is the mic coming? Thank you. I, I wanted to begin by thanking all four of you. I've learned a lot today. Um, and therefore, I want to ask a, a question I'm wrestling with, uh, which is we focused on the UK-US differences over the next couple of years or so. But I want you to look 10 years out. And if you look at break-even inflation in the markets, then in the US, you know, except for a little bit of noise here and there, essentially the market expects uh, the US to achieve 
its inflation target. But in the UK, it doesn't expect that. It expects inflation 80 to 100 basis points higher than target. So I'd love to have your conjectures about why that's true. And then my second nerdy question is just for Don. Uh, and, and, and essentially, Don, you said uh, correctly that uh, obviously the tightening in financial conditions could be a substitute for a rate hike if sustained. You were careful to say that. Mm -hmm. But surely if the Fed doesn't raise, then the financial conditions will loosen again because I think the market assumes a, a tightening's coming. Right. More, I mean, it's two-thirds price ten for November. Do you want to do that one first on the short-term yeah. rate? Right. So I think markets are wondering whether that interest rate uh, hike is coming, that extra interest rate hike. And I think they're more focused on holding rates, whether the Fed will need to hold rates at something like this level for a longer time. It's true to some extent. Now, in order for that to happen, the Fed would have to see further sustainable progress on inflation. I think taking some of the pressure off labor markets, all those things I, I talked about, that would be the circumstances. And then they should assume that rates are going back to zero, but not back to zero, but going, going down. Uh, I don't think they'll go to zero. That was the previous conversation. Um, but I do think it's also important to recognize that an awful lot of the increase in longer-term rates, maybe to some extent, has been this high-for-long thing. But I think most of it is worries about uh, savings investment imbalances owing to the deficit, uncertainty exacerbated by uncertainty about the uh, about the political situation in the U.S., um, the China-Japan issues that we talked about. So I don't, I don't, I don't think the 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 expectation about Federal Reserve rates have really contributed that much to the recent backup. So if the Fed doesn't quite raise rates, I don't think it'd be a big shock to the market. Right, Chris, give us your answer to the first question, which is why do markets think that a country that's had a messy year might have yeah. a higher inflation rate in 10 years' time? Well, you've, you've answered it in the uh, <laughs> almost in asking it there, Torsten. I think, well, two things. One is I would eat, still be a little bit wary about the UK inflation expectation numbers being priced of RPI inflation. There is quite a lot of uncertainty about that. It's a, one of my favourite topics. I'm not going to go into please, it. Please don't do that. Please. <laughs> now, uh, but uh, that does create an uncertainty about exactly what the wedge between that and CPI inflation is over the next five, ten years. So I think there is, you know, it might be that there's no difference. But to the, let's assume there is a difference. To the extent there is a difference, as you su suggest then I think it has to be the performance of the UK political and economic um, sphere over the last five years has really been pretty bad. And that is, a, and markets are pricing that what, you know, we say the past is no guide to the future, but maybe they are pricing in that the past might well be a guide to the future. If you, if you look backwards, what is, it, what is a sensible inflation expectation is quite an important question. And it's not two at the moment. You know, if, if, you know, if at the five-year, five-year forwards, 
in 2017 um, are looking a bit silly right now, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, yes, uh, they are indeed. Right, let's um, let's give each of you a chance to um, wrap up with a dual question, right? Which is, what is the thing that we should worry about most? And I'll give you, a, I'll minimise your list of choices in a second, and then give us a give us a reason for. Opt, otherwise we'll be here all day. We've all got lots of issues. Your therapist wants the whole list. I don't want the whole list. Uh, they, and then give us a case for optimism about like about how we're tra getting through this like slightly unstable phase of macro policy slash long-term traumas on uh, living tenants. So on the, the constrained choice on what to worry about is which institutions should we be most worried about? Central banks, because they're either going to get their independence uh, questioned if they need to maintain rates high enough to give us big house price falls uh, and the rest into next year, or uh, they could just get it wrong and give us a big recession. And it turns out it wasn't needed and everyone gets pissed off either way. So if you worry about that institution for either independence reasons or uh, bad outcome reasons, or should we be worried about fiscal institutions because they haven't got the levers to prevent themselves being on debt ratchets through recessions, um, and we could, we don't know what interest, future interest rate world we're living in, but that debt ratchet could be harder to deal with than we were hoping in the past. So you're more worried about fiscal institutions, slash some of them are run by mad people, in our case only for 44 days, uh, <laughs> but in your case for a possibly longer uh, time period. So which one are you more worried about? But then give us your case for optimism. Chris, why don't you go first? Go on. Fiscal or monetary angst and well, then case for perkiness? I worry about both, but I worry more about fiscal uh, because I see the difficulties of dealing with an ageing population, new security threats uh, and uh, very big potential demands on infrastructure, particularly as we need to green the economy as being quite hard to deal with. Uh, what am I optimistic about? I am optimistic that actually modern capitalist economies are better and more resilient than we often give them credit for. So even though the world is not going to be an easy place, it might not be as bad as we think. So who says the FT is just a bunch of social democrats? That was a proper core neoliberal answer there. Yeah. Like, absolutely spot on, word for word. Right. Um, so the, I think the Ipsos survey out last month had people worrying about first inflation and second inequality, which I think is kind of interesting. From the from the from the um, government perspective, though, Thorsten, my concern is that governments, so many Western democratic governments, are saying the threat we face is China, and the threat we face is Russia, and they're not looking at the hearts and minds threat at home. And, it, and interestingly, it's people in the military in this country, it's people in the military in Germany and people in the military in Australia that say to me that they're worried about the internal threat. They're worried about the challenges to democracy that are coming from within, within um, countries. And, and that's because polarisation is taking politicians, whether in coalitions or not, to extremes to extremes to win and, and, and stay in power. And those extremes take them to bash the establishment, which is the source of anger in so many of the population. So when you say which institutions, you know, the, the judiciary, 
definitely central banks and technocratic institutions. They're all going to burn together. Establishment parties, they're not all going to burn together. They all have to take seriously what, why it is that the populist anti-institution message resonates and, and, and respond to that. That's, that's what I think. Optimism? So what makes me optimistic is the evidence that shows us that, because I do think that this incredible political polarization is, is the biggest threat to our institutions. So what the evidence tells us in that world is there is absolutely no point doing what most of us in this room do in the face of somebody who believes something that we find not credible, which is present them with the evidence, tell them that they're foolish, educate them. Does that not work? Tell them, tell them what to think. That turns out doesn't work. And it really doesn't work. So the OECD have published an interesting study on climate yeah. about this. What does work though, and this is what gives me hope, what does work to bring people together are practical, pragmatic solutions to specific problems. Which is why even tonight, asking about inflation and monetary policy, I think we need to bring it down to what is the practical problem that people face that we're trying to solve through this debate, through these policies. Because that's how you bring left, right, religious, non-religious, that's how you bring these incredibly polarized societies together. If you get people working on a practical solution and stop trying to persuade them that their, their, their fundamental beliefs are wrong, you actually find that people can cooperate. Great perkiness. Don, come on, who's going to burn first and perkiness? So I think we need to bring your message to the US House of Representatives. <laughs> so I <laughs> find out how they can cooperate. Yep. Um, I'm much more worried, in the short to medium term, I'm much more worried about the fiscal authorities and the monetary authorities in the United States, partly because of the polarization and the political problems. I don't see the legislation governing the Federal Reserve changing anytime soon. But if polarization persists and the resentment of the technocrats increases and those people take over all the branches of the government, that's going to come back on the central bank, uh, along with a lot of other... I was going to say, at that, of, at that point, a lot of bad things are happening. Right, a lot of bad things <laughs> That's the least happening. of our worries there. Um, so I, I think, but first and foremost, it's our political system and the implications for fiscal policy. And I thought Chris made a really good point, which is given the fiscal trajectory, if there is another uh, recession for whatever reason, mm -hmm. the fiscal policy makers will feel like they can't respond, exactly. certainly can't respond in anything like the, uh, like the, the scale that they did to the, the COVID shutdown and it'll be all on the monetary policy makers to respond. What gives me optimism? Yeah, come on, Don, come on. Um, I'm having trouble here, oh, but on. I think, <laughs> I do think Maybe it's the rise in long, just in the sort of intermediate term, it's right. this rise in long-term rates. Oh, right, I didn't see this which, coming. Which will incent the fiscal policy makers oh, right. to, um, to try a little better to come up with a bipartisan That is, that is very silver linings. Uh, <laughs> great. Okay, well, I, I agree with you both on, I'm much more worried in the, about the fiscal authorities as our, like, actual uh, trauma. I was going to end with two bits of optimism to get us out of the... The first is, so we've had a financial crisis, in our case, a kind of civil war or Brexit, 
a pandemic and then a cost of living crisis. So maybe we've just got a reversion to the mean, which is like, we just won't get a bad thing for a while. Like we've, we, maybe we've had like 30 years of bad stuff and we can now just have like a nice, boring 2000s again. So that's my optimism. Reversion to the mean is a thing in lots of that's other things. That's your optimism? Wait, yeah, that's my optimism. <laughs> Nothing's gonna It happen. can't get much worse. It's been really bad for 15 years. We're owed a bit of perky times. My second reason for optimism is that it actually, you know, we've proved that we can overcome polarization and cooperate because the Resolution Foundation and Brookings can cooperate in putting on <laughs> events like this. And if we can solve problems like that, we can build a better world. That's what I would uh, leave you. So can you all thank, uh, thank Don, uh, Chris and Nari for their thoughts today. Ooh. Thank you all for coming. Go out and build a better world. Get that inflation down. Get that growth up. Stop anything else happening. Build a better democracy. See you all soon. Great. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.